I remember, you know, my mom, you know, she used to, you know, um, tell me, don't look white people in the face. Like, there was these rules to survive, right? And I think the talk was these, it was a survivor kit of, like, how to interact with white people. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Monica. And you're listening to Cage Nation. listeners we are here today with anthony jordan hello anthony hey monica how you doing i'm good i'm good we're happy to have you here yeah i'm glad to be here well my two favorite people are you sure about that (laughs) yeah sometimes i mean you're stuck in a room with us yes i am i like that you said sometimes sometimes with monica not you got it got it got it um, so Anthony, I first met Anthony when, uh, we worked together at a previous nonprofit, which mm-hmm. was interesting times. Very interesting. We for all of us. don't <laughs> have to go all the way back and relive any of that. But, um, I have grown fond of you and also respect a lot of the work that you have done in the community. And so I really appreciate you taking time to come on to our podcast and, share your experience, your knowledge, opinions. Um, So our first question on the show is, when does a person's sentence end? So what do you think about that? Well, thanks for having me. I I think this is a, you know, good topic. I think, um, you know, criminal justice and some of the other topics we're going to talk about, I think it's really good and and sort of that's where my passion lives. So thanks, thanks for inviting me. Sure. When does a person's sentence end? Um, I think in this society, probably never. Um, You know, this is a little self-disclosure. You know, it's so funny because, you know, I'm a recovering person. Um, You know, I've been off of drugs about 28 years. And, you know, I had a couple of run-in with the law. And I've been blessed that it hasn't really affected me. But early on, um, it really affected me a lot, like from getting a job. Uh, But it's so interesting, um, my job that I currently work, always have to go through that background check and I like get really nervous right. like, even oh, still even still yeah even still and this like, has been like 29 years ago like they're gonna find out they're gonna ask about it or, or that know. or that somehow that it's still gonna apply like I'm that same person then mm-hmm. like somehow that you know those things and then it's like misdemeanor charges too like shoplifting or some other stuff but um I always think Okay, is this going to be one of those things where I have to explain something 30 years ago mm. when, you know, I already paid my debt, paid off the fines, did my probation, got everything over with. Um, and so I don't know if, I guess there's a society, society things where it ends, right? Like on paper. Sure. But I think the consciousness of the person who, who actually have the criminal record, it never ends for them. Like, I think, you know, people say, well, you're off paper, but inside, internally, all the things you have to go through, I think it never ends for the person. And I wish we could, you know, kind of do something about that. But so I don't know. I don't know if there's an end. I don't know if there's an end to your your criminal activity, at least in this society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about things that are 30 years later for you, um, and maybe you're, I mean, unlikely that you're reliving any of those things day to day, but then something like a background check or filling out an application or having to put something down about 30 years ago, it's like, 
it, yeah. it's like brought back up again. Yeah, yeah. And I always think like, what is the purpose? Like, it's, it's interesting to me because, I mean, most of this was back, I mean, I think the last time, um, it was 1989. It's the last time I got into any type of trouble with the uh, criminal justice system. I think since then, I probably had one, maybe in the last three years, maybe one ticket. Mm. Like, I, I mean, I have seen no inside of any jail. But it's like, it's it's an interesting thing because, you know, like, even when the police stop me now, I get, like, nervous. Like, well, what if they run something? And, like, what if something pop up or something? And then, like, they drag me out the car. Or, like, I think I'm someone else. Um, um, I think it's a psychological thing for me because mm-hmm. it, it feels like a never-ending thing, even though, like, I'm, I don't do anything illegal or, you know, but... It just seems like a never-ending thing when it comes to your criminal record. It's like, I wish they could put it in a vault and say, oh, yeah, you're done. Um, and that you can never realize certain crimes you can't get off your record, no matter how long it is. Like, yeah. some misdemeanor charges. Like, I had a DUI. That was one of the things. Um, that was in 1987, 86, 86, 87. And, like, it still come up when you go to Canada. Like, you like you go oh, to right. Canada. Yeah, like, it's like... Oh my God! Like I can't even get a Canada. I don't even drink anymore. Like, um, does and, Canada let you in? You know, sometimes it depends. Like sometimes you oh. you can pay you can pay money to like get in, but like sometimes they don't like do anything to you. Like sometimes they you know just wave through. So I haven't had any problems. But I had a friend who just it was a convention, like a twelve step convention. They would try to go to the twelve step convention. Mm. Yep, couldn't get in. Mm. Yeah, and this is like thirty five years ago. That's crazy. 30, 30 years ago. Not 35, 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like, so, yeah, when does it end? I don't know. It depends on where you go. Yeah. It makes me think about, like, what the point of a background check is, especially in our field where right. we, we know we're working with people who have lived experience. We know generally that part of that lived experience is going to be contact with the system. But what are we really looking for? And at what point does it not become the the defining part of what that person's role is going to be um and i think about peer mentors how many Mm -hmm. peer mentors i've tried to hire where they were like flat out no and i'm like this person's on fire for recovery they're doing so much in the community but this background of who they're not anymore and who they weren't in the first place right um continues to impact what they're going to do or define what they can do yeah i often think that like a lot of people who um been in the systems that you know, once was, you know, the the worst system ever for them, right? It's probably the greater change of that system, but they are often the ones that's rooted out. You know, I was thinking, you know, I used to work in the criminal justice system, and I was thinking some of the probation officers, there have been, like, a lot of people who probably could have been great probation officers who would have had the empathy and the support and knew how to talk to people who were just like them that would have made great probation officers, but then they're bound by like certain you can't have certain crimes if you you know and all those other things which we know there's a lot of people who work in this field who they some of them in it for the money or some of them don't have the same compassion or empathy to help people with with like like you're saying that lived experience that these mentors would bring that they bring a certain level of people who have the shame and guilt for you know all the stuff they have done in their addiction 
who need that level of empathy when they first come and try to get claim that someone could offer. Um, yeah, I don't know what the purpose of the background check. I think that there is one purpose that it does play a role to a certain degree. I mean, there are certain crimes you want, you know, I mean, because people with addiction problems, they're all vulnerable people, so you don't want someone to prey on them. So there's certain crimes I can see how you could restrict them. But some of the crimes we're talking about, like, possession of a controlled substance is keeping people out from helping people with you know substance abuse mm-hmm. problems is Which a lot of ridiculous. It doesn't really make sense. It's kind of backwards, right? Makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Or like certain property crimes because someone was trying to support their habit. You know, yeah. that makes no sense. But if someone like has some sex crimes or some, you know, they mess with a vulnerable person or that, that makes total sense because you don't want somebody not to have the chance or the opportunity to sort of um, get a clean and sober life. So I see why it does make some mm-hmm. sense. But Yeah, on this show, we've also talked about the difference between what someone's arrested for, what they're charged with, what they're convicted of, or what actually ends up coming out in a courtroom, and then what they actually serve, serve time on, which can be all very different things. So when you talk about a background check, which is the outcome of all of that, that could be that crime or whatever is on that piece of paper could represent something very different um, that didn't really have anything to do with what they were doing or maybe something that they happen to be caught up in or who knows. A lot of other things um, can be can be the situation there. Yeah, I think that's the criminal justice system is broken. And I think we both all both of us, yeah. all three of us can attest to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I was working in a criminal justice system, when you, I would read some police reports and then I would read like to the end what, you know, someone ended up in prison with. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, like, how did this, sometimes I used to wonder, how do people get here, right? And, yeah. and it usually, uh, and, and that's why the DA plays an important role mm-hmm. about like how people get to prison, not necessarily what a person did, but determines how people get to prison that's why you know and i don't know if we're going to talk about this later how disparity and racial um you know how race play an important role Mm -hmm. in how people um end up in prison not necessarily what they're charged with but how people are sentenced right um so i think you're right that those things don't always match up like what someone did to when someone get to prison or even in jail um you know, I could speak to something else, which I'm not, but, like, th- there are certain programs by which, you know, certain populations don't get into that, you know, prison become their route to getting better where some people have the opportunity. Um, uh, certain crimes are sometimes, you know, not enforced in some communities, and they're highly enforced in other communities. Um, and, um, you know, it's just broken. You know, it's, it's, it's broken in how we police it's broken in how we sentence people. It's broken how when people get to jails, how they are treated, um, how they uh, serve probation, um, and it's broken services. once they yes, and how they get services once they get these. So, it's it's a broken system, and that's why it's always interesting to me when people say, "Well, let's do criminal justice reform." I always wonder what part of the criminal justice system will they focus on? Like it's usually about when people had done their time or they're in prison or they're in jail they want to reform that part of it but what about the other parts before they even get there right there's Um, a lot of steps along the way yes there's a lot of steps um so we had a guest who talked about the bias in courtrooms particularly from not only the court staff but really the the jurors and who makes the decisions to even try somebody um and that's you know i think when we're talking about 
dismantling the system or even looking at parts of it to change, like you're saying, you can't just change one part of it. You can't just say, hey, let me work really hard to make sure that people coming out of prison have access to services. That's only a tiny, tiny portion of the amount of things people have to go through before they even get to that point. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about even going back further to young people in schools who are being policed at their schools, um, not, not only schools, but then their neighborhoods. I mean, it's just, it starts, one of our guests said it's a, it's a life, it's a birth to grave process of policing and, and having exposure to the system. Yeah, I think it's even worse to it's even people's perspective about policing. And, and, you know, um, you know, I often talk to, you know, I, I post a lot of things on Facebook. A lot of things is somewhat controversial, but it's interesting to me to watch people respond. And, you know, especially when there's the police involved. And and it's, it's an interesting thing about, like, my experience with the police opposed to some of my white brothers and sisters, right? Um of 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 just you know my interactions, um, you know my I, I'm, my wife is white, right, and her perspective about the police is is sort of totally interesting and it's totally different from my perspective. But what was what was really interesting is that she see my she had like seen a couple of interactions with me and the police, and she has said, oh, they would never you know had done that to me. You know, just to tell you a story about that, we yeah. were I was living out. And it's a small town, Hubbard, Hubbard mm-hmm. Oregon. Mm-hmm. And um, and at this time, I was staying out there because my son um, was going to school out in Wilsonville. And so I got, had a little apartment out there. And I would bet you I probably got stopped at least six times by the same officer. But this one particular time, my she was my girlfriend at the time, but she's my wife now. We was at a light, and I turned left. And I just, I, I don't know, maybe went... I don't know, 100 yards. And then the light went on, the police light went on. And he walked up to the car, and she was, like, going nuts about it. Like, what did you do? You didn't even do anything. You just turned left. I was like, just take a chill. It's okay. I have my license and insurance and everything. And and the guy came to the car, and it was at nighttime, and he's shining the light in, and he's like, well, what are you, what are you doing, boy? Right? And I was like, oh... We were on our way, we was going to the grocery store, and he's us was on our way to the grocery store, and then he shined the light over, and he said, license registration? And my wife at the time, I mean, girlfriend at the time, she was like, what did we do? He said, uh, ma'am, um, I'm just asking for license registration, I'll tell you what you're doing when we get back. So he goes back, and I'm telling her, just be quiet, just take a chill, we okay. Yeah. But hers, her, she had this righteous, like, we didn't do anything. Yeah. I'm going to argue with this guy. And I'm like, just be quiet. Well, it's also this... the amount of privilege that you yes. have right in that moment. She can risk yes. yelling, being mad, right. accusing. You can't risk that. Well, it was just no. the, the, the word safety came to mind. Like, for you to do that, absolutely unsafe. Unsafe. Yeah. And I'm looking at his gun, and I'm like, I am not saying anything. Matter of fact, my hands is on the wheel. But, like, this is, like, and she, I mean, she's, like, really red and mm-hmm. furious, like, because nothing I've done. And so he comes back, and then he just gives me my license back. And he said, hey, thanks a lot. Have a good night. He never once said why he stopped me, right? But, but then on our conversation, right, after that, she's, like, like, I'm talking about 
bent out of shape over it. She's like, that is messed up. He had no right to stop us. That is messed up. I'm making a report. I'm like, no, we ain't making no report. We got out of this thing alive. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like, we're, like, moving That's on good. past this. That is a good thing. Yeah. And I was like, you know, we're an interracial, you know, couple. You know, this could have cost us our lives, In right? Hubbard, Oregon, yes. To be yes. Real. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying this is what I'm thinking. But, you know, she she's never had that experience, right? Like, she... In her world, if you get stopped by the police, there's a real good reason. You're speeding, there's something, you know, your light is, like, there's a real good reason. In my world, like, you're getting stopped just because you might be suspicious looking, you might be new, or you might just get harassed. It's not, it, it doesn't have to be anything. It's just like, you just gotta, like, play it, you know, play it cool and just ride this thing out. Don't do anything stupid, mm-hmm. you know? And it was so funny because right after that, it was, you know, they talk about the talk. And my son, at that time, he was probably around about, like, 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this conversation with him. And I don't know why I had it. And he, he was looking at me like, like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, what? I don't even have my license. I think that's what he said. I don't even have my license yet. I'm just saying, when you do, just remember this conversation. And actually, I've had conversations every year after that, even when he when he got his license. And I remember the last conversation we had about this, this was... I, I don't know if I told you this, but mm-hmm. he was like around about 16. And so one of the things I told him to do is to put your license and insurance card in an envelope and then keep it above the sunbars. And I bought a little clip because I was like, you do not want to be reaching for everything. So just keep everything in one place where your hands is up. Mm-hmm. And so this one day I'm looking for it because I, I, I would always check. He was giving me a ride. I was like, okay, Jermaine, where's your... Um, license, where's your um, registration and insurance card? And he said, um, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? Like, I'm freaking out now. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. You remember we got the new registration? I don't know why I put that. I was like, stop the car. We're we finding this thing now. And I said, what did I tell you to put that? He was like, above the sunrise. I was like, okay, but why is it not there? I don't know. We got new cars and stuff. I just, I don't know. I was like, okay, we stop in the car. We're going to put everything and we put it there. And he's like, I don't, and then he, then he, then he was telling me, okay, I don't know what the big deal is. Like, okay, I just tell the police, you know, and he can just like go look me up. I said, no, you are not telling the police go do anything. <laughs> when he comes in his car, you don't give him everything he want and let him do what he has to do. And so, but he, he was like a little upset about that. He was like, no one else, like, no, no, other kids, they have to go through this. I was like, well, you're not the other kids, and they don't have a dad like me. So, but it was like, and then I felt bad about it. Mm-hmm. Why, I like, why'd you feel bad? You know what? Because I looked at him, and at that moment in time, he looked just like another kid. Like, why, why am I putting this burden on him? Like, he, like, why am I telling him all this? Because in the ideal world, it wouldn't really matter. Like, it, it, he, you know, kids all the time like all messed up with stuff and you know losing things yeah like but why am I so because I was like really intense about what did I tell you to put this but for me it was like I don't want you dead it's an it's an actual safety plan yes it is literally a safety plan yeah life or death safety plan yes but he doesn't get that no so he's like a 16 year old kid at this time and I'm like and I can't explain it to him I can't, because his experience is not like that. He hasn't ran into a situation like that. 
I mean, he's seen things, but I don't think it applies. In his world, it doesn't apply to me. Like, he doesn't see himself as sort of, I'm this black kid that this can happen to me. He doesn't, that's not how his worldview is at this time, right? Um, and it's so different now because we, you know, he's 19. And um, we've been having conversations about that. And it's so funny because I was just with him this weekend. And he has his um, license, his um registration and stuff above the sun visor mm. and uh we was having this conversation because something happened at ufo and he was telling me he's like yeah dad i really see the whole race thing it's like yeah this kid just got accused of something and there was a whole like uproar about it and stuff like that so he's understanding this sort of you know this idea of race it's not a one-off it's the no. system yes this whole bigger context yes yeah. yeah so that was that was a blessing for me that he's sort of understanding some of the things that I was trying to say to him. And I was telling and I like I told him, I don't know if that police would do that. I'm just saying this is a just in case because yeah. you never know. Like 99 percent of the police officers probably wouldn't do that. But it only takes one. You only mm -hmm. got one life. So I don't know that one. And that's what I was trying to tell him. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But yes. I heard you say the talk, um, and I've heard that before. I've heard um, families of color using the language the talk. Can you describe or share what that means? You know, it's so funny because I think that's been a term that's been coined, the talk. I don't think we looked at it as that, mm -hmm. like the talk. It was sort of, it's an interesting term, the talk. I think it was just something for... You know, even when I was growing up, there was these rules. I don't know if it was the talk. It was like these rules of, you know, rules to survive. The police or any, it wasn't really just about the police. It was just white people in general, right? Like, I remember, you know, my mom, you know, she used to, you know, um, tell me, don't look white people in the face. Like, there was these rules to survive, right? And I think the talk was... These, it was a survivor kit of like how to interact with white people because your life was always at a sense of threat, right? So even with the police, it's sort of like, you know what, when the police come and stop you, don't say anything, just give him what he wants because he, you know, and, and, you know, my mom used to always throw in something like, because you know they stupid, right? Mm -hmm. And so it gave you a sense that like, okay, you know, they kind of crazy. You better like do what they say. And so it was It was an interesting, and, you know, people do it differently. Um, but I think that the talk for most people of color is really talking about how to survive sort of this white world where you in some ways are treated as a second-class citizen and the rules are a little different mm. and your interactions are just a little different and your safety is a little different and your body means something totally different, like, to people of of different racial backgrounds and so i think the talk is that it's more of a we we need to survive so a survival kit yes that maybe isn't like one sit down it can be one sit down but yes. it really is this socialization of how yes. to survive within this context that is not built for um, it's built for white people mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you're right. It's not, I don't think it's ever one sit down. Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of been dramatized as, it, as as it's one sit down. But I think, like, even, you know, when we were going to school, like, my mom would tell us there's these rules of behavior or these, you know, um, or, like, walking from school or 
if you you know like that whole idea of stranger danger mm. like it was it was like as time went on as you, the older you got the more of these sit downs or these like I need to tell you about this you know and I think it was based upon like what age you were and so I was the oldest so my mother was always having these conversations with me about like you make sure you go with your brother and if these things happen these are the rules right like super real yes got real. yeah it's yeah. not like we're gonna sit down this is what this is the rules and you know one of the things so I lived in New Jersey for a while and my mother was from the south and I remember like we used to go down and visit oh my god it was a totally different rule from like when we lived in East Orange which was like all black people I mean it's so funny you know looking back because there was this there was this freedom when you live around black people. Like when it's just all black people, there's not there's not a thing about color, right? Like you don't it's not the interactions is like you don't you don't have to like change anything. You can just you be You don't have to monitor yourself. Yes, yeah. It's just like just you, you feel a sense of freedom. But I remember when we used to go to the South and then my mother would like there was the things that she would grab your hands and you would feel a sense of like, why are you, like, my mother wasn't like a loving type of person, but like, mm-hmm. why are you holding my hands there? Sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you were actually touching my hands and I don't know why. That's <laughs> one of those things. Like, she's touching me. Oh my God. My mother never touched me. Um, Is she like, what do you think it was? I think it's. To like keep you close to. It sort of reminded me of like, I was in the store not too long ago, and I'll get to your point, but I was in the store the other day, and I, I mean, about a month ago, and you know how kids are in, like, the shopping basket, mm-hmm. and they, like, turn it back, mm-hmm. and they're looking at you? Yeah. And you know how kids are always looking at you, and then you're, like, you know, waving, and then they're smiling, and then they're turning away. And so this mom, this I man, this kid is having this eye contact, and the kid is like, I'm, I'm looking interesting to this kid, and we're having this thing, right? And the mom looked back, and then she grabs the the the, the baby um, by his hand and says, "Hey, you know, are you okay, right?" And she and she pulls the baby tight, right. So now, now, I'm thinking this child thinking that's probably someone that's unsafe because yeah. like that's right, right. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things, right? Like, okay, this is un- we're in unsafe territory now. Like, you 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 got to be real close. Mm-hmm. You don't get the chance to run around and do all that little free stuff. Yeah. And I remember she used to say, whatever you do, and I remember this, do not look at white people. Just don't look. And, like, she was used to always, like, we would always have to stay in the car, and she would, like, deal with everything. And we'd be looking out the window, like, little kids, like, oh, my God, can we get out? And it's like, it, you know what I mean? Like, and the only time we could really, like, hang out was with our family, right, and the other kids. And, um, you know, looking back, I know why she did that. It was a form of protection, right? Because the South was a little different, you know. Um, this is in the in your early 70s. And so, um, you know, sometimes you reflect back, and it didn't make sense to me then, but I understand it now. So I think. I've heard you talk about uh, Portland uh, specifically, but Oregon in general being a very white state, oh. which I know it I, is. I just want, I love Have you Oregon. ever said that? Uh, I've said it more times than one. Oregon is probably one of the most interesting places I've lived. 
That's good to know. Yes, it's the most interesting. I've also heard you say that uh, towns that are uh, like, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? Yeah, I know exactly towns that are like last, like last names, right? Or first yeah. names. Is it first names? No, like- no. What I said, you know, I was telling that story about my wife. Um, one time, you know, back to my wife has been white. And one weekend she had came to me and said, you know, she was like really, 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 truly happy. And she said, Hey, baby, hey, listen, me and my sister, we go to a town, and, you know, I really, really would like if you, you know, you and Q, which is her sister's husband, to go with us. We have a great time. And I was like, oh, where's this town at? And she said, oh, the name of the town is Otis. I said, whoa, whoa, I do <laughs> not. You're like, I, slow down. Yeah, whoa, Hands whoa. Down, not yes, I don't go to any town with a person's name. So if it's Otis... Joseph, Joseph or anything, yeah. I am not going to that You're town, out. right? And then, and then I was telling her, and then also anything with the last term, like like the last word is Ville, like Creeksville and oh. Oaksville. Mm-hmm. I stay away, and yeah. and and it was interesting because she just looked at me, and I was like, she's like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "Listen, why would I go to any person, go to a town with a person's name?" So I already know I'm out because mm-hmm. it's gonna be so small. That some dude, probably like some cowboy or something, said, I'm naming this town Otis. Right. And I'm not gonna be welcome in that town. Yeah. And please, and if I listen to this podcast, don't don't come and shoot the two people here. I'm just making a stereotypical thing that I have to live by. And if y'all want to invite me out to your town of Otis and keep me safe, I'm willing to come. Sure. But um, but what I was saying, um, because like, you know, most of those places, right, like my my wife she sees the world as her playground. Like, she can go anywhere. Listen at this. She could, my wife can get up and she, she, she can say, you know what? I just feel like to go to, you know, Jimmy Dean, Oregon. And she, she just flies. But when I go, I have to think about my safety, right? Like, I, I think about, am I going to feel comfortable? I can go to Otis, but how comfortable will I be? I'm going to be looking over my shoulder 24-7 that all the little cute shops that you see, I'm thinking about, is this person going to take my life because I'm with a white woman? Like, am I, like, going to be a target or someone racist attitudes? Like, what am I going to have to deal with in this little small town? Yeah, you have so, to, like, think through all those yes, things. I have to go through all that. So why would I spend my time trying to go through all that and then try to have a good time at the same time so mm-hmm. I kind of like rule out things yeah. and I have to have a process of elimination and that's just two of them yeah so that's understandable well it made me think about even the officer who pulled you and your now wife over thinking about the reason why you had to be out right <laughs> like this idea that for me as a white woman I don't need a reason to go out I can do whatever I need to do um, and I've said this before on the podcast I sometimes don't feel safe based on being a woman in like a dark parking lot or something like that right but never do I think because of my race and so it's this idea that like even to like go somewhere with your wife you have to think of a good reason why you would be in that area at that time right besides just spending time with your wife right. maybe going to like an antique store or something i always tell my wife and the police stop us we're gonna we're just gonna act like we're just friend work colleagues right because mm. the you know like sometimes the idea of marriage you don't know like they could have like this issue right um so we've had like 
plans like that too depends on like where we're at like we're just gonna say we're just work colleagues mm. right because mm-hmm. you know like if they ask yes yes it's safe and you know people don't have to they won't get into oh this is an interracial couple right like they won't get into that so that's, yeah when you talked about being pulled over and like the flashlight in your car and, and you know um this interracial couple in a car yeah. and being asked about that like where are you going i reverted back in my mind to like pictures or stories or movies from like the 50s maybe <laughs> where people were stopped like people right. were policed in that way in my mind that that was like a historical thing but when you describe it and i know that that's in recent years it's like that happens like where that goes through someone's mind or that kind of that image that you're creating is crazy to me but you got to think about like what's happened in the past like couple years like racial stereotyping is not it's not like a 50s thing it's a today's thing where you can just get you know go to starbucks and someone say oh you're waiting the next thing you know you're in handcuffs right Mm -hmm. yeah somebody could ask you they could say oh where's this person going they probably up to no good right and then you can end up dead right like you know, I'm talking about like this, these things that happen, like it seems like when he was asking me, where are you going? I was thinking, I better have a good answer for him because then if I don't, he's going to, you know, and it's got to be the moment. Like, mm-hmm. well, I'm with this woman, I got to have something that's good. And the grocery store seems like really a good one. Yeah, it seems kind everyone, of like a neutral everyone, territory. Yes, everyone goes to the grocery store, yeah. right? You know what I mean? So you're not saying we're going to a hotel. No, we're not saying no anything that's going to create. We're not going home, right? Right. Not discomfort. Yes. Yeah. We're actually going home too. Yeah. <laughs> but which we, is crazy yeah, that you no. can't say me and my partner are just driving home. Yeah. That it, that was an unsafe answer. You know what? I'm just saying, but that's the things that we have to navigate. Like you know, I, I was I was at work today and I was telling this this person. It's interesting being black. I, I find it the most fascinating thing, too, because, you know, some of the things I have to navigate, I just feel like I'm a detective sometimes, right? I was telling them, like, if someone do something to me, like, like say, for instance, if you was passive-aggressive to me, I have I would to... never do that. I'm, I'm just saying, if you did, if you did, right? I She's a to, white woman in the Pacific Northwest. She's been passive-aggressive a time or two. That's right. But what I'm saying, but if Don't I Don't make me email you. I know, that's what I'm saying. And give me, and then have a little thing in that I have to figure out, what per does my, that mean? Per my last email. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. per my, yeah. It, it's so funny because it was something similar to what you just said. And so I'm thinking like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I know it's passive-aggressive, but I know I can't confront you, right? And ask you in a way... I can't confront you and say, what was that email about? Because I, I really didn't get that. Because if I do, I can't, I want to confront you on the principle, right? But when I come to you, you're going to look at me, it's that I'm coming to you as a black person. And the first thing you're going to do, and, and I'm telling you this because it happened, the person start thinking, I'm talking to him as a black, as a black person, right? So it has to have been, because I'm, you know, of my race, that I was so sensitive that I read something into it, right? And then and then they're thinking, well, I'm not racist. No, no, I'm talking about the principle. So anytime I confront someone, I have to decide, should I do it? Because I know mm-hmm. I'm not just taking the principle, I'm taking me, the black person, and the principle. Because they're not going to be able to separate the two, right? Like, it's hard for them to go... Did they get offended because they were black and somehow I was white and that 
kind of change the dynamics. Which or, then also gives it a reason, right? Yeah. It totally excuses this whole thing of like, right. but really I was being passive aggressive and yes. I could have just said, yes. hey, then we don't, don't even, at me like yes. that. Yeah. Now we're not even talking about you being passive aggressive. We're mm-hmm. talking about, was it because he was black and sensitive? No, just because you was passive aggressive. And if you would have been black, I would have came to you too, right? It wouldn't even really matter. Like, why do you have to respond that way? It has nothing to do with me being black. That's what I wanted to say. And I was like, okay, this is just too much energy, right? And it's exhausting, right? Because you got to figure out, do I take this one on or do I wait? Because I know another one's coming. Mm. So I think that's the exhausting thing. And, and, and that's Oregon. Oregon is like, like you, know how, you know how some people say, well, I'm not a racist. But there is a difference between like black and white people. But I'm just saying, we. I mean, there is, there is a difference, right? It's sort of. But I'm not saying I'm a racist, right? I would never do anything to you, right? It's one of those type of things that, you, you know, I talk about like mm-hmm. they they're living this thing. I'm not a racist, but yet that's this idea of inclusion is a very difficult thing for them to get into. They can speak their language. Yeah. But, like, when you look at sort of the disparities and how, you know, non-inclusive they are, it's a different world. It's, it's Yeah, and I think doing equity work or just even looking at race or kind of anything with a marginalized group, you have to be self-reflective in that process. <laughs> yes. And I think particularly for white people, that's really hard. It's one thing to look at another community and maybe do some research or find ways to support that community. It's a whole nother thing to look at like your own identities and the space I hold in the world and kind of like break all of that down. That's hard work. And I think most people don't really want to do it. You know, but you know what? I agree. And it's hard work. Like, you know, self-reflection is a very difficult thing. And especially when someone is saying that you or or you feel like you're being accused of something, yeah. right? And 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 what I'm saying is is I think that that's where you can't make any change until you do that though. Yeah. Like when you was asking earlier, I think there's this change that must come where people must accept their place. And I think it's easy for you to just say, you know what, we, we do have a difficult time with this. Like we do. And I think that opens the door for change, right? It's when you continue to deny. And then you keep, you know, saying, I'm going to do this. And it it, start, it stays the same, right? you back to the same thing every one or two years. You're back mm-hmm. at the same level of progress, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I always, I'm a hopeful person. I do this work. I do a lot of equity work because I believe in it. And I believe people do have the capacity to change. But you know what? You have to have the will, though. Like, you can't just talk the talk right you have to have political will you have social will and you got to have and and you have to sacrifice things yeah you 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 can't make any change without sacrifice and so I always wonder what are you willing what is what is portland willing to sacrifice like you can't you can't make the change without that yeah you're gonna have to give up something along yeah, the way yes and some of maybe what you talked about early, like around this idea of privilege. Like, do you do you put forth someone else instead of yourself, right? And I think it's really hard to get white people's buy-in, particularly white people who have had adverse experiences, who have this narrative of like, well, I grew up really poor and I grew up, you know, I had really bad things that happened to me. How do I understand not only the privilege I had within that space, but also how do I understand giving up something or sacrifice some sacrificing something <laughs> for the better 
of everybody, um, which to me then leads back into that entitlement to comfort, right? This, this space that we as white people get into where to look at ourselves, we have to look at everyone that we've loved, everyone that we grew up with, and begin to untangle the, you said survival kit for, for you and your community, but I would say entitlement kit to me and my community, right? This space of like these messages that I'm entitled to these certain things and no one can question me. Um, and how do you begin to dismantle that? In can you even? I, I think you can, but you have to be kind of consistently intentional and it takes a lot of work, like you said. And you, you don't ever arrive, right? You never no. like arrive to this place. No, we didn't get here overnight. But it's interesting that you talk about white privilege, right? Man, anytime, like I do some training in the community, and when you use the word white privilege, it takes people all. I know, I was they, at one of your trainings. Yeah, and they it like blew up. Because the word white privilege it, it's, it's sort of one of those things that it, it defies white dominant culture paradigm. That is the idea that you gave me something mm. that I did not earn. And that that is a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking about this um, not too long ago. Like, when you look back at slavery, right? So what we, what we really know from slavery time is that only like 1% to 2% of, of white people owned slaves in the South. It was a very small percentage, right? That, that many of the white people in the South was really only a step above a slave, right? They was indebted to the slave master as that of the slave, right? Sure. The but, culture of poverty or living yes, in poverty. Yes, yeah. but one of the things that they had was the privilege of their white skin color, mm. right? That they had, they had even, even though that they are poor, right, and they was getting handouts and credit and all this stuff because they couldn't afford a lot of things. They felt one step above, right, because of their skin color. And ever since that day, right, they have always felt one step above. Like they, it's sort of like when we when we talk about affirmative action, it's, it's affirmative action in reverse. Like, you know, once upon a time, if you were white, you didn't even need an education. You could just walk into a job just because your wife can't get a job. And they would say, well, I earned that. But there was no earning to it. You were just because he was a black person, mm-hmm. right, that was going in, had a degree. You didn't, but your skin color said you got the job, but you won't claim that, right? Mm-hmm. They had to put in laws to, like, protect someone from that, right? And you got pissed about that. So, so you know what I mean? You got pissed because now they said, we're going to make it fair, right? Anytime. Again, the sacrifice. I'm yes. using quotes. I'm using finger quotes. Yes, quote, yes, yes. So when you're talking about privilege, right, when we look back in, in the history of America, there's a lot of white people gain a lot of things when black people couldn't have. We talk about VA loans we gave the greatest amount of wealth in America, right? But they were saying, no, I earned that. But there was many black um, soldiers who went out and fought and who couldn't even get a loan to buy a house. And if they did. So you, you might not, so when we talk to people today, they're, they're actually reaping the benefits of their family getting a benefit where you know the greatest amount of wealth we get is through home ownership. So if your family will you a $200,000 house when they passed away, you're up. Mm-hmm. But if you couldn't get it, right, 
then you, you it, couldn't get a home loan. Yes, or, yeah. right. So you now you can't even transfer wealth, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about privilege, we're not saying that you didn't grow up poor. We're not saying that um, that somehow that you didn't have a hard life. We said that if you would have applied yourself equally as the black person, you would have had one step up. The whole time. Yeah, the whole time. So nobody's taking away your work or hard work. We're just saying that it's not equal, right? That you have the benefits of your skin color that gives you an advantage from the beginning. Not taking away your hard work, but you got an advantage. Whether you reap, whether you reap the benefits or you knew you reaped the benefits, it's not even relevant. Because sometimes you could get a benefit, you don't even know it. You could go into a job interview and someone give you a job because it was like, oh, there's another black person, he was a white person. You don't know if you reap the benefits from that. You have no clue. But we know that when we go back and look at data, it supports disparity and harm, right? But you, you wouldn't know personally. So it's not personal to you. We're looking at a systematic structure of racism that has been created privilege. You're talking about employment, workforce, or education. What about the prison system? Same way. Is so, but I'm saying if you, I mean everybody, you've seen Thirteenth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's the whole structure that created the system where where slavery never ended. It wasn't designed for like whites. I mean I'm saying when you look at the disparity. More people of color is incarcerated per population than anyone that's white. Not saying that a white person don't go to prison, but at the rate, it's lower, right? Yeah. So if you, so what I'm saying is, is that we know that in sentencing, right, black people get sentenced. What is it? I think it was like three or four times higher than yeah. a white yeah, person. Yeah, almost five. More yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. More often and for longer yeah. periods of time. So, so what I'm saying is, is that, but no one is saying a white person don't go to prison. We say when we look at it, though. Yeah, in comparison. Yes, in comparison. That two you, people going to prison, yes. one is white, one is black. Yes. That's what we're looking at. And that's privilege, even though both are still going to prison, yeah. right? Yeah, even for the same crime. Yeah, but that's what it seemed like it, it should be in reverse. If you're going to have a disparity of people right. of color in prison, it should be a disparity in resources for them. If you believe that the criminal justice is there for reform, right? But many programs are not designed for that. It's sort of this, well, y'all went in, y'all can get the same benefits as anyone else. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. I get, I guess to me, I get a little, you know, frustrated that in order for us to do something about the criminal justice system, especially the disparity, we actually have, we have to have programs designed to target um, not only just people getting out of prison but what about prevention work what about going into these communities what yeah yeah. like why are we not doing work um to the same degree as we would as we do when they get out um you know we have a lot of issues in in sort of these communities and it's by design it's not it's not like these communities has like somehow just because they you know was bad or whatever when poverty and some of those other social structures that wasn't in place or infrastructure wasn't in place to support um you know um people when there's disparities in education and jobs and those other things then you're gonna have a community that, that is struggling right um You've been working in Portland a long time. Yeah, a long time. How well? Don't tell my age on this thing. I won't reveal your age. No worries. Okay. Um, How well does Portland 
accept, embrace people who are coming out of prison and more specifically people of color coming out of prison? How well does Portland do? Um, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to quantify that because I haven't really worked in other places. And, you know, Portland does do some work that's really good. And, and there's these other areas they need to improve on. So I would give Oregon, I mean, Portland especially credit. You know, some of the things that I can say Portland has done, especially Multnomah County, they have really invested a lot of money into other areas where even surrounding counties don't invest their money into when it comes to the criminal justice and then sort of treatment and services, right? Um, but when it comes to culture-specific services, it, it's a double-edged sword, too. So I think we... I don't know, let me see, how can I say this? There is areas that the community need to improve on as far as being able to provide those services. Yeah. And I think it's it's, it's got to be a collaborative um, effort with not only just um, Multnomah in the city of Portland, but I think the DA's office and some of these. I think it, I think this approach got to be a collaborative one. Mm-hmm. It can't be just one, you know, one group doing really good work, and then you know the system is like over here. We're not going to do anything. So I think when we look at criminal justice reform, especially in Multnomah County, it's it's got to be more of a collaborative approach, right? It can't be where the jail is doing some good work. But then there's these other groups that's not doing anything because. Um, yeah. I mean, it seems like so many different systems are impacted, whether it be treatment, health care, housing, yes. employment. I mean, there's lots of other systems involved. Yes. And a part of what I think you're saying is those other systems have to take on um, accountability or change just as much as um, like the DA's office yes. or sentencing or the yes. prison system. Yes. Yeah, it's it's definitely all of that. And I think that's how we're going to make inroads to, like, sort of the disparity issue. I think a lot of times these initiatives come out of one office. But like you said, there's the health care, there's mental health and addiction services and school systems and all these other systems that don't even even get a – no one even addressed those issues to even prevent them from getting there. So I think it's, it's, if people really want to address the – holistic approach to you know, the spirits in the criminal justice system, they gotta look at all those systems as a whole. Yeah. And it's built on racism. Yes. I mean I, I think about just myself in my own process of understanding or beginning to understand the, you know, what that means as a white person. Like how do we begin to understand the the impact of the racism before we while we try to do this work, because really we're going to be building a new system of racism, and something that I know um, through my own process is these systems of racism are super smart. Mm-hmm. They are like always evolving, even if they look or they are the same, they're still like totally evolving. They're coming up with new laws, all these different ways to continue racism in the system, even if we're trying to be quote unquote progressive. Right. I, I, you know, I, I totally agree with you that the system is going to always have in place these unintended consequences where someone is always going to be devising some sense of like, you know, it, it, they may not say, say it in an intentional way, but it's going to be structural racism to protect dominant culture kind of values and ideas, right? I think where we fall short is that we don't have people who have like I was talking about the political will or the social will to speak out against 
these type of things in a way that it has meaning and purpose. And I think this is we. So so one of the things about racism in this society, we we can't do it in policy in and in itself, right? Um, we got to we 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 have to call. I, I I would say a movement. Like it can't. It's sort of like the civil rights movement. The only way change happened was it was the constant in your face about stop doing this. We 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 sort of have this this I don't know like in 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 you know around the United States and here in Oregon we have this like I don't know what you call it but it's sort of like we we start with something and it's never carried out. It's like oh we we'll start something. We're gonna do this occupy thing. Yeah, and then like <laughs> next thing we're on something else. Yeah, right? yeah, that was a good idea. Yeah, and then we move to something else. And it's sort of this sort of like um, it's sort of like um. I don't know, like a bipolar approach to, you know, not saying anything about mental health, but sort of the the premise about like bipolar, like one day we're up, one day we're down, and there's no there's no organization to it, right? It's sort of like pockets of organizations, but there's no collective groups saying we 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 demand change, right? It's not a collective group. It's not like all the smaller groups getting together saying this is our collective voice, right? So the collective voice is like just it's just not not here but that's the only way you're going to change racism right it's got to be a collective it's got to be a collective disapproval of these systems being in place right like it can't it can't happen with you know just me as an individual or this group as a group right it's got to be this collective approach that we take and that we believe that racism and the structural racism is wrong and that we we believe that in our heart, right? And we stand for that. We stand against it, right? As a collective society. And I think that's what we need to have more of a movement about. Not necessarily like always run into every policy, only for three others to be. You have to dismantle the other three, right? <laughs> like that is in place. Um, and 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 I think that's that's the movement we got to go back to. And it's sort of similar to the civil rights movement, you know, like. That was a collective voice. We had like a strong leader, and people looked at it and said, "This is not right." And it was a collective voice. It wasn't just black people. White people saw said, "Y'all can't do that to people," and not saying that racism went away, but the movement made change, right? And it didn't make all the change, but change occurred where people wasn't getting like beat up in the streets, and people wasn't like you know not served. They was treated as second class citizen in a way that that was occurring. So that it accomplished, but it did it it. What I think happened worse was that it felt like that was the end. It didn't. It didn't move further than that. Like our work ca- is already done yes, here. Yes, right. Like we, oh, we completed. Racism has gone because we had these, you know, major legislature. It, it didn't. It didn't move on, and you know, and then people was, other. There was other second class ways that people were treated after that. It wasn't a collective voice that said. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to look at the prison system. We're going to look at all these other things as they go. And so I think that's where the drop off. That's my thoughts about, you know, that collective um, voice that we can have. I think it's challenging, particularly now. Um, and, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> I think, we, uh, yeah, I, it, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a challenging time now. Listen, if anybody think we're done, then we can look at the social and cultural environment by which we live in. And if they think we're done, then I want to have a conversation with them 
And when y'all bring them on this podcast, I'd like to be a part of it. We I will. Like, I, I will have, send them directly to your Facebook page. Yes, please do, because I have a few questions for them. That's just few. And, um, it, yeah, I. you know what? It, yeah, this, this work is never going to be over. Not in my lifetime, probably your lifetime. I just wish we could just, you know what? I was I was I was thinking about when I was in Africa, right? I went to Ghana and I was and I was walking around and and it was nothing but black people, right? And and it was a trip, right? For a moment, right? Like I started looking around for white people, right? And and there was none. Like I just I couldn't find. I was looking for Chinese people. I was looking for Hispanic people. And, and there was two things that came upon me, right? One, I enjoy the diversity in America, right? And it's hard. But then, but then there was another part of me. I didn't worry about anything about being black. I felt, I felt so at home, right? In a, in a country that I, I, I know nothing about, right? And then, then there was this other part that came to me um, that was really, was really, I, I, I don't know, it was, it was sort of fascinating, was as I was talking to people and they were saying, welcome home, right? And, and, and all these other things. And then I realized, like, it, 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 was, it, it wasn't my home, but it was, it was a place where my ancestors lived, right? And that... And that, like, this is my home, right? And that it's, like, I'm, like, somewhat responsible for how my home, you know, like, I'm responsible for what, how my home operates. And when I came back, I came back, like, I can't, I can no longer complain about what I want to see the change to be or even understanding the landscape by which I live. So am I going to be afraid not to say what I, what I wouldn't stand for myself or what my home should be? Would I want to sit back and see any person treated differently? Like, would I, like, how would I want to live my life, right, if I died today? Would I want to see, I wouldn't want to see anyone treated with such injustice as I see sort of like going on. Like, like, why would I just sit back? Like, what, what, why, why do I, what would I get from that? What would any person get back by watching someone else being treated badly? And when I was in Ghana, what was interesting, right, they had no money. They had, they were poor, and they treated each other with kindness. There was nobody ripping someone off. There was no one treating anyone. Like, you would think that, like, oh, my God, all these poor people, I know I'm going to get robbed. No, they was not doing that. So why would I want to live in a country where I see people hating me because of my skin color? They know nothing about me like, and not say anything. Why would I want to see kids living in cages, right? are being put in cages, and I deny that they're in a cage, right? Like, why would I not say anything about that? What, 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 it, what would that say about me as a person, as a human being? Like, why would I want to see anyone get treated as a second-class citizen? Why would I? So, if, so I always think if you're sitting back in silence, then it say more about you than it does anyone who's promoting that. So if you want to let, if you feel, you know, we talked about sacrifice, if if you're not willing like if you're not willing to use your voice because you're afraid to lose something, then you're probably not in it for this cause. Mm-hmm. So somewhere like you have to be willing to say 
for the for the sake of mercy for someone else, you might have to sacrifice your voice for your job, for your for whatever. But sometimes that's what you have to do for someone else, right? And so standing back and just watching how people treat someone badly, it's not it's not an option. That's how we change. It's not an option. If your kid, if you see your, would you want your kids to be treated that way? Would you want your kids to be put in a cage no matter what they did? Would you want to live in another country? And then you trying to go and get your kids a better life and whether it's wrong or right, but just for your kids wouldn't starve. You would want them put in a cage instead. No one should live like that. And that's not okay and bad behavior. That's just like survival, right? Like we, we would all do that. None of us, none of us would see our kids starving, right? That we would just, we would fight for that. And we would go to any lengths to do that. And, you know, and I just don't, I, I can't stand for that. I, I do not like to see, you know, someone getting shot. Or someone, you know, there was something in the news about these three kids killed that older guy. Like, how, how would you, how was that your grandfather? Was your grandfather just got shot for no reason? How would anyone want to stand, not stand against that? So we have to have culture and empathy for all people, not just because I'm black, I'm just probably for anyone. Where there's an injustice, all of us should stand up against, no matter what our skin, skin color is. We should all live like that. that. That's how we change. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you feel like is important to share? You've shared a lot of really... Um, inspiring and helpful and thought-provoking things, but is there anything else that you'd like to share? And, you know, um, I, I just want to thank you for inviting me. I just, yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just want to. I want all of us to, you know, kind of see each other as human beings, and uh, I think if we we could get to that, we won't have the problems that we have. You know, the human, I don't know, the human capacity to love and care for one another. We all have that, and just. I wish we could get past skin color. And to step into discomfort. Yes. Where you're, you're not going to, it's going to be fine. Yes. It'll be fine. It's okay. It's It'll okay be totally to be discomfort. I'm always, you know, black people walk around with discomfort all the time. Get used to it. It's all good. It feels good. Actually, you know, I was telling my wife, it's okay to be, like, when you get used to being comfortable, that's the worst place that you could actually be in. You need to get some skills and some tools, right? Because when, when stuff fall apart, yeah, this is what happens. You got to have a little discomfort in your life. So get used to it. It's, it's all good. Well, thank you so much for You're being welcome. here today. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for making me uncomfortable. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs>